Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Strange Matters podcast. Here at Strange Matters we discuss everything that is bizarre, mysterious, and unexplained. I'm Sean, the host for this episode. This time on Strange Matters I will be discussing the odd and unexplained events surrounding the death of a woman named Cindy James. Cindy was a woman who had been experiencing harassment, stalking, and attacks for years leading up to her death. Despite what would look like to an outsider as a serious threat, the authorities found some inconsistencies to her story that made them question whether all of it was real or some kind of setup by the woman herself. The bizarre nature of the scene of her death has left open the question whether Cindy was murdered, took her own life, or if it all happened by accident. In this episode, I will be going over Cindy's backstory, the timeline of events leading up to her death, and the possibilities and theories surrounding this mysterious story. Strange Matters is made possible by our generous supporters over on Patreon. On Patreon, listeners can pledge a small monthly donation, and in exchange can gain access to exclusive monthly bonus episodes and help decide the direction of the podcast. I'd like to thank the newest patrons of the show, Cassie, Deanna, Carrie, and Bailey. For any other listeners who would like to support the podcast, you can do so by visiting our page at patreon.com slash strangematters. And now on to the story of Cindy James. Cindy grew up as the oldest of six children, with her parents Tilly and Otto. Cindy would live in the quiet suburb of Richmond in Vancouver, British Columbia. When she was 19, she would marry a doctor named Roy Makepeace, a man 18 years older. Cindy would go on to graduate from nursing school in 1966, and eventually began to work in nursing. She would later become an administrator for a preschool for children who had behavioral and emotional issues. Though it would seem like she was happy and content with her life, eventually things started to take a turn for the worse. In 1982, Cindy and her husband Roy would separate. Shortly after this, Cindy's life would suddenly and drastically be changed, when she began to experience a disturbing case of harassment. Later on in 1982, Cindy would begin to receive anonymous and threatening phone calls. Cindy first told her parents Tilly and Otto about her situation, and how she was frequently getting disturbing, whispered phone calls, as well as some mysterious letters. These letters and notes were made out of newspaper and magazine clippings, in which threatening words were glued together on paper. Some of these notes had threatening messages like, Soon, Cindy, you're dead, and pain, knife, mangled, pray for dead. The phone calls were equally threatening and creepy, and I'll include one of those voicemails left to her here, in which the harasser can be heard whispering, Cindy, dead meat soon. Eventually, Cindy would involve the police and inform them of the harassing calls and letters, but this seemed to only cause an escalation. Whoever was behind this harassment stepped up their game, seemingly getting closer and closer to Cindy. During one night, Cindy found out that her outside porch lights had been smashed. Another morning, Cindy would leave her house to see three dead cats hanging in her garden. A picture of a corpse being wheeled into the morgue was left for her. Raw meat was found outside her house. Cindy's dog was once found shaking with fright with a cord tied tightly around its neck. 
Several times, her phone lines were cut. Creepy notes were left on her doorstep, promising the threats and stalking would only continue. Cindy began to hear what sounded like someone, or sometimes several people, prowling around outside her house at night, as if they were making no efforts to hide the fact that they were there. A year after the harassment began, Cindy's situation became even more disturbing. Agnes Woodcock was a friend of Cindy, and was aware of the troubles going on. She herself had seen several of the threatening notes left outside her friend's house. In January of 1983, Agnes would go over to Cindy's for a regular visit. Upon knocking on the door several times, she heard no answer, though. Knowing Cindy was inside, Agnes assumed that she must be taking a bath or otherwise preoccupied, and so she waited outside for a while. As Agnes paced around the outside of the house, she suddenly saw her friend Cindy. She was laying outside with a nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck. After Agnes helped her out, Cindy said that she had gone to her garage when someone had attacked her from behind. She had no idea who it was, and the only thing she was able to see was that the man wore white sneakers. Feeling this was the last straw, Cindy made several attempts to try and distance herself from whoever was stalking and harassing her. She would move to a new house, and she changed her last name, even painting her car a different color so it would not be easily recognized. During this time, she also hired a private investigator, Ozzy Caban, to try and figure out who was behind all of this. During this time, the police would question Cindy on multiple occasions. According to the police, Cindy was very evasive during this questioning, and would give vague answers and appear to be withholding information. To them, she was not acting as a normal victim would. Her hired PI, Ozzy, would say that she would not tell them the whole story. The police asked Cindy to perform a polygraph test, and afterwards the examiner also said that, in their opinion, she was withholding information. While the police were starting to feel suspicious about Cindy's behavior during questioning, her mother Tilly would later say that she believed her daughter Cindy was only acting protectively of her family. Tilly thought that the attacker had explicitly told Cindy that if she ever told the police the truth, that her family would be harmed. Ozzy Caban would frequently check on Cindy's house at nights in an attempt to catch the prowler and stalk her in the act. Ozzy had also given Cindy a two-way radio to keep in her house so he could keep tabs on her. On January 1984, a little over a year after Agnes Woodcock had found Cindy tied up outside, Ozzy was alerted when he heard strange noises coming through the two-way radio. Ozzy quickly drove over to Cindy's house and began to investigate. The doors were locked, and he did a quick perimeter check of the house, and saw nothing of note outside. Ozzy then went around the house again and looked through all the windows. And eventually, he spotted Cindy. She was lying motionless on the floor, with what looked like a knife sticking all the way through her hand. A note was stuck in that knife that was through her hand, which read, You are dead, bitch. Ozzy forced his way into the house and ran to her, believing she was dead before he was able to find a pulse. The police and an ambulance were called, and Cindy was taken to a hospital. Once there, she said she was again taken by complete surprise being attacked in her house, but she couldn't remember anything that happened beyond feeling a needle going into her arm. The police again questioned Cindy, and she would say that sometimes she spotted this harasser alone, but sometimes with several others with them. 
The police cannot find or gather enough information to find any suspects, however. In fact, the police did not bother to take any fingerprints in the house after the attack, and they were growing frustrated with the case. Shortly after the second attack, the police began to put more resources into Cindy's case. They attempted to track the threatening phone calls, but they were always too short to trace. The police then started a discreet 24-hour surveillance of Cindy in her house. However, during this entire time, Cindy would receive no phone calls, no notes left outside, and no attacks of any kind. But almost immediately after the police surveillance ended, the harassing incidents started back up. At this point, the police began to grow even more suspicious of Cindy. To them, she did not seem to be a fully cooperating victim, did not seem overly concerned with giving them enough information to actually help out her situation, and whenever they got involved, the attacks conveniently stopped. There'd be some questions on the police side on whether these attacks were actually happening, or if all this was just a setup scheme constructed by Cindy herself. While the police would continue to be involved with Cindy's ongoing troubles, without any evidence or any information given up by the victim to go on, they remained largely ineffective in getting to the bottom of this bizarre case. In December of 1985, 11 months after her previous attack, another incident would occur to Cindy. The woman would be found in a ditch six miles away from her house. She was dazed and incoherent at the time of her discovery. Cindy was found wearing men's work boots. During her treatment, it was determined that she was suffering from hypothermia due to her prolonged exposure outside in the winter, as well as having numerous cuts and bruises covering all over her body. Once again, a black nylon stocking was wrapped very tightly around her neck. Unlike previous attacks, in this third encounter, she had no recollection or memory at all of anything that had happened. Growing even more concerned, Cindy's friend Agnes Woodcock and her husband Tom began staying with Cindy. During one of their nights over, both were awakened to noises lower in the house. As the pair went downstairs to investigate, they found that a fire had been started in the basement. When Tom tried to call 911, he found that the phone was dead. He then ran outside the house to alert the neighbors, but upon leaving Cindy's home, he saw a man standing on the street just outside, looking up at the house. Tom yelled at the man to go call the fire department, but instead the man just took off running down the street, disappearing into the night. Eventually, the authorities were notified and both the fire department and police arrived on scene. The police began to investigate this newest incident. They found no unknown fingerprints or disturbances on the outside windows. The fire had been set in the basement from inside the house. With no indication of a break-in, and with only three people inside the house at the time, the police suspected that Cindy had staged this newest disturbance herself. Around this time, the police also found it odd that Cindy had been frequently going out walking her dog alone in the middle of the night, even while all these threats and attacks were seemingly happening. They felt that this was very unusual behavior seen in someone who was supposedly fearing for their lives from constant attacks from an unknown force. For several years after this, this pattern of Cindy's life continued. She would receive threatening calls and there would be disturbances around her house. Finding herself on the verge of breaking down, she went to go talk to her doctor. Seeing the effect of the fear and stress was having on her, 
the doctor committed Cindy to a psychiatric ward, feeling she might be suicidal. During her stay, Cindy would write about her situation, saying that she felt that her credibility was destroyed and that no one believed her, that her life was a living hell, and that she had in fact been contemplating suicide. A note was found that Cindy had written which stated, I still feel suicide is my best option in an unbearable situation. As soon as I get out of here, I will carry out my plan. For two and a half months, Cindy would stay in the hospital before being released. Upon returning home, Cindy would admit to her parents that she knew more about what was going on than that she had been telling them. In fact, she claimed to know who was the one behind all of this and that she would go after the perpetrator herself. Perhaps finally deciding to be upfront with the police, Cindy would talk to detectives and finally admit to what she knew. Cindy told them that she believed that the person behind all of this was her separated husband, Roy Makepeace. The detectives had Cindy call and confront Roy while they taped the conversation. Roy, however, denied having any involvement with what was going on. The police had no evidence against Roy or that he was involved in any way, so he was not treated as a viable suspect. On May 25, 1989, Cindy would disappear. Her friends and family would quickly pick up the fact that Cindy was not at home when she should have been, and a search for her was launched. Shortly later that day, her car was found in a parking lot. An inspection of the car showed that groceries and a wrapped gift were in the back seats. There were several spots of blood on the driver's side door, and several of Cindy's wallet items were discovered under the driver's seat. Where Cindy was, or where she had gone, was unknown. For two weeks, there was no sign of the woman. She had simply vanished. In the middle of June, Cindy was finally found. In the yard of an abandoned house by some bushes, the body of Cindy James was discovered. Her feet and hands had been bound behind her back. The familiar black nylon stocking was tightly tied around her neck. She had cuts and bruises on her body. It appeared that Cindy had been attacked once again, but this time the harasser had finally done enough damage to murder her. The police recovered her body and an autopsy was performed. It was here that something unexpected showed up. Cindy did not die from blood loss or trauma, but instead the cause of death was a drug overdose, as a large amount of morphine and several other drugs were found in her system. Rather than believe Cindy had been murdered, the police concluded that she had actually committed suicide. They still leaned on the idea that Cindy was the one orchestrating all of this, and that this last fatal incident was just another setup attempt in which she had perhaps inadvertently gone too far. The coroner, however, did not fall in line with the police's theory. Instead, the coroner ruled that her death was not definitively a suicide or a murder or an accident. Instead, she was simply ruled to have died from an unknown event. Cindy's family and friends instantly rejected the police's conclusion. Her parents, Tilly and Otto, believed that her daughter was murdered and blamed the police for never believing Cindy or ever approaching her death as a potential homicide. Instead, they think that they originally thought she had committed suicide, and so only focus on findings that would fit into that narrative. Cindy's father, Otto, called the police work a non-investigation, as it was not an investigation to determine what caused his daughter's death, but rather an investigation to try and pin everything that had happened on Cindy herself. Cindy's sister, Melanie, wrote a book titled, 
Who Killed My Sister, My Friend, which details the story of Cindy's harassment and the family not accepting the final verdict. Private investigator Ozzy Caban also believes she was murdered, saying that no one could have done the things that happened to Cindy to themselves. In the six and a half year span of Cindy's torment, she received over a hundred threatening phone calls and letters, including several acts of vandalism towards her home. She was attacked, bound, and beaten up several times. But in a case that to most people would appear to be a pretty obvious disturbing murder, there's still much debate as to what was really going on. The coroner's inquest into Cindy James was one of the longest and most expensive in the history of British Columbia. Dozens of witnesses and experts were called to provide testimony on different parts of Cindy's story, all in an attempt to decide once and for all if her death was a murder or a suicide. After three months, the jury could not come to a clear conclusion, and her death was left undetermined. A reporter named Neil Hall covered the story and said about Cindy's death, This is the most baffling case I've ever come across, one that's kept me awake at nights. I know anybody who's come across this case, the jurors, the coroner's people, the police officers, everybody has lain awake at times thinking, can this be? Can somebody have done this to themselves? Or can somebody be out there still lurking? People involved in this case are split in what they think really happened. The police favor suicide, Cindy's family believes murder. Others who looked into the case are indecisive and can't choose one theory over the other. The reporter Neil Hall eventually settled on the suicide theory, stating that if Cindy took the morphine by tablets, she would have around 15 to 30 minutes to tie herself up before the drug fully took effect, giving her enough time to stage the scene to look like another attack. Private investigator Ozzy Caban sticks to the belief that she was killed, stating that there is nothing to indicate that Cindy took the drugs herself. Ozzy also points out that there is no way Cindy's body could lie where it was found for the two weeks she was missing and not be discovered. There was just too much activity in the area for such a thing to go unnoticed. Ozzy instead thinks that the attacker dumped her body there two weeks after her disappearance, and that the body could not have been there for any longer than a day or two before being found. If all this was in fact a murder case, there wasn't much to go on in terms of suspects. The police at one point had Cindy's separated husband, Roy Makepeace, as a suspect, based on her own belief, and the fact that their harassment started just months after their separation. However, there was never really any link or evidence that put Roy as the person responsible for any of the physical attacks that occurred to Cindy. Another possible suspect was a short-time boyfriend of Cindy named Pat McBride, who also happened to be a cop. However, just as with Roy, nothing of substance could be brought up to point to Pat as the likely culprit. There's also the mysterious man who was seen just outside of Cindy's house when it was on fire who ran away, who was another person who some believe was either the main harasser or perhaps working with them, but the identity of this mysterious man was never found. Cindy's former husband Roy would believe that she had multiple personalities, and that she was in fact the one behind everything and tormenting herself but did so under the power of her other personalities so that she consciously wasn't aware of what was going on. While this theory might seem unlikely, there actually is another case that could support this explanation. In Wichita, Kansas, in the late 1970s, a woman named Ruth Finley went to the police to report a problem very similar to Cindy James. Ruth had been receiving threatening phone calls and letters, all from an anonymous stalker. 
Neither Ruth nor her husband Ed could think of who was behind this. They were a normal couple living in a quiet neighborhood. The investigation into finding Ruth's harasser was just as long and complex as Cindy's case, as the police spent three years and over $300,000 trying to find the culprit. During this time, and due to the letters they sent, the mysterious harasser was known simply as the poet. The police could do nothing with their first complaint, as there wasn't much to go on, and they happened to be a little preoccupied with a certain BTK serial killer who had murdered seven women around Wichita at this point. However, shortly after making the report, Ruth would disappear. She would eventually turn up later that day, saying she had been attacked and abducted by two men, who drove her around for hours before she was able to escape the car and run away. Similar to Cindy James, the police put Ruth Finley under constant surveillance. Under this time, nothing happened. But, in another similarity, once the police ended their observation after five weeks, Ruth was almost instantly attacked once again. She would go to the hospital with several knife wounds, one of which was nearly fatal. The media started to pick up her story of this poor, normal woman who is being antagonized and attacked by a mysterious stalker. A psycholinguistic consultant to the police looked at the poet's letters to Ruth and claimed that the writer was severely psychotic, schizophrenic, wily, pathological, paranoid, and a loner with a deep feeling of persecution. Just as with Cindy James, Ruth's house would be visited by her attacker. Their telephone line would be cut several times. A knife wrapped inside a newspaper with Ruth's address on it was found. An unlit Molotov cocktail was found sitting outside their house. At one point, their Christmas wreath was set on fire. At multiple times, eggs and feces were thrown at the house. The investigation into the case was kicked up a notch when the poet sent a threatening letter to the wife of Wichita Police Chief Richard Lemunyan. The police chief then personally got involved in the case, spending a full weekend studying 15 boxes worth of evidence and notes himself to get a better understanding of the case. During this time, Chief Lemunyan started to see some strange oddities as he looked over the files. One was that in the spot where Ruth said she was abducted, no other sets of footprints were found beside hers. Another was that when the police installed a secret camera that only Ruth and Ed knew about in the backyard of the house, all the vandalism of the house from that point on switched to the front yard. After two whole days of working solely on this case, the police chief knew who the poet was. It was none other than Ruth Finley herself. However, police chief Lemunyan knew that he needed more evidence before he could make the claim. He ordered a secret 24-7 surveillance operation around the Finleys, one even that they didn't know about. During this time, a helicopter that was following the couple spotted Ruth dropping off several letters in the mail. Of these five letters, two were bills, one was to another person, and two were letters from the poet. The operation continued and they caught Ruth once again dropping off letters that were written by the poet. The police then determined that the stamps on the letters from the poet sent to Ruth were the exact same kind as the stamps on the other everyday letters that Ruth sent out to others. Eventually, Ruth and Ed Finley were brought into the police station. Ed was ruled out as having any part of the poet activities. As for Ruth, when she was presented with all the evidence against her, she broke down crying. She said in that police interview, I wasn't sure I was guilty, but I did know something was very, very wrong with me. I wish I were dead. 
I guess I'm just crazy. Ruth agreed to enter a hospital for psychiatric care, and no crimes were charged against her by the police. As it would turn out, Ruth Finley had been sexually assaulted as a child. The poems that she wrote as the poet alluded and hinted at some type of sexual crime. It was believed that the big news of the BTK committing several acts of sexual violence triggered something in Ruth, and emotions that she had suppressed since childhood started to surface in unusual ways. She experienced what is called a disassociative reaction, a split of the conscious mind in which one group of mental activities breaks off to function as a separate unit, as if it belonged to an entirely separate person. So, if it is possible for Ruth Finley to be harassing, tormenting, and even physically attacking herself, could the same be true for Cindy James? While no known deep psychological trauma happened to Cindy, it's possible that something did happen, and like Ruth, it was just buried deep inside her for decades. With Ruth's case, though, while she did nearly kill herself with her self-inflicted wounds, she did eventually get the help that she needed. It could be possible that Cindy suffered in a similar situation, but unfortunately for her, she would end up dying for one of her self-inflicted attacks before the truth could come out and she could get help. There's also a growing phenomenon that also shares some similarities to Cindy James's story, and that is what is called gang stalking. Those who experience gang stalking believe that there is a conspiracy of groups of people who are constantly spying on, harassing, and threatening the individual. Today, there are more than 10,000 people worldwide who claim that they are victims of a vast organized surveillance effort all designed to ruin their lives, a phenomenon which goes by the names of gang stalking, group stalking, or community stalking. Some people who report gang stalking or group stalking have wild and extraordinary claims. And in one study of 128 people who claim to be victims of gang stalking, filed reports of such things as teams of men in black vans, everyone in the streets being plants acting out roles towards the victim, kind of like the Truman Show, the use of voice-to-skull messages, organized electronic mind interference, and remote enlargement of bodily organs. Now, while the reports to that extent don't really match up with Cindy's story, there are more milder tales of people supposedly experiencing gang stalking in which they claim that a small group of people are constantly harassing them for unknown reasons and are always watching what they are doing. The fact that Cindy James reported at times that multiple people were involved in her harassment troubles does sound like a few gang stalking stories and claims that I've read about. Just as with Cindy, some of these people tried to move or change their names, but the attacks and the threats continued no matter where they went or what they did. In the same study that gathered information on those claiming to be victims of gang stalking, all those involved were found to be likely suffering from delusions and rated more highly for symptoms of depression, trauma, and adverse impacts on social functioning. The victims reported feelings of going mad, depression, fear, distrust, and feelings of suicide. Victims were unable to identify their stalkers by name. Overwhelmingly, these people would say that they would not go to the police for fear of being ignored. And interestingly, the majority of them were found to be women. There does seem to be some parallels between Cindy James and the average person who claims to be a victim of gang stalking. Cindy expressed that she felt like she was losing her mind, she was in constant fear, and she was distrustful of the police and did not feel like they would believe her. For a long time, she would not identify who she believed her stalkers to be, 
and she also contemplated suicide. So while there have been other cases similar to Cindy where the stalker is in fact on their heads, there are still plenty of people who are convinced that Cindy was actually being threatened by someone real and was eventually murdered. If this was the case, there are a few assumptions to make about her attacker. The person would have to be very close to Cindy, or otherwise have a way of finding out personal information about her. The fact that this person always went quiet whenever the police were monitoring or surveilling Cindy would suggest that this person knew it was actually happening, in which case they would have to either have gotten the information from Cindy or from the police. This has led some to believe that Cindy's boyfriend, Pat McBride, who was a policeman, could have been involved. However, their harassment started right after Cindy separated from her husband, and as far as I can figure out, was quite a while before Pat entered the picture. So unless he started stalking her only to later enter in a relationship with her, the timeline doesn't really make much sense. Between the two main suspects, that of former husband Roy Makepeace and later boyfriend Pat McBride, there seems to be more pointing towards Roy. The fact that their harassment started right after their separation seems to be a red flag. There are also some sources that claim that Roy had quite a temper, and at several points over their long marriage, had even hit Cindy. In an interview after Cindy's death, Roy still expressed anger towards Cindy, saying that he felt Cindy was very disloyal to him, and that he couldn't stand disloyal people. Some believe that since Roy had both the personal experience with Cindy and was a doctor and a psychiatrist, he would know just exactly how to mess with her mind. If Roy was behind it, he could have offered up the multiple personalities theory as a way to divert attention away from himself. One of the big questions I have about this case is if the stalker was a real individual, what is the motive? Whoever was behind this must have been so obsessed with Cindy that they were willing to harass and threaten her for almost seven years. By all accounts, Cindy was a nice and friendly person, there were no apparent enemies or anyone in her life that she wronged in such a way that could generate this magnitude of hatred. This person was not only angry enough just to harass her with phone calls and letters, but also going as far as to physically attack her multiple times. Then the obsession and anger of this person would have to be coupled with the intelligence to not put themselves in a position to be caught over that seven-year period, as well as finding themselves in a position to obtain inside information about the police investigation towards Cindy. Again, just to bring back up the two typically suggested suspects, it seems to me like Roy would have the more clear motive. He held a long anger towards Cindy, even after her death, and if he was in fact abusive at times during their marriage, it doesn't seem too outlandish to believe that he could escalate over time as his rage and obsession grew to the point where he would attempt and then finally succeed in murdering Cindy. For me personally, this is one of those mystery cases where I just can't settle on one theory over another. It seemed like every time I set my mind on either explanation of Cindy being stalked and murdered, or mentally breaking down and committing suicide, I would then find a new piece of information that would make me doubt that position and swing back the other way. Looking up other people's thoughts and opinions on this case seems to reflect that, as the amount of people suggesting either murder or suicide seems almost evenly split 50-50. On one hand, it would seem reasonable that if there was in fact a real stalker out there harassing and attacking Cindy, that the police would have been able to catch them, or at the very least find traces of evidence. However, on the other hand, it also would make sense that if it was indeed Cindy all along and everything was all in her head, 
that the police would also be able to figure that out, such as in the Ruth Finley case. Though to be fair, in that one it took the police chief himself to personally connect the dots. Again, to think of both sides of an argument, the police never really found anything or anyone that was a true viable suspect, or find many leads at all in this case. At the same time, the police seem to have not taken Cindy very seriously, as there are some claims that the original detectives who took her story labeled her as untrustworthy and hysterical, and then all the other later police officers who looked over the original notes would then go into the case with that mindset. If the police were only ever putting half their effort into her case, and if Cindy's stalker was smart, patient, and had some inside information, then it's logical that it could make for a situation where he was able to keep getting away with it. As for now, Cindy's case remains largely unsolved. There are claims and arguments for both leading theories, one saying Cindy was a target of an obsessed and violent stalker who finally went over the edge and killed her, and the other stating it was Cindy all along, and that perhaps her mental state allowed her to carry out these bizarre acts without ever really knowing she herself was behind it. At this stage of the story, it seems unlikely that the full truth will ever come out, unless if the real stalker decides to confess everything one day. If, and until, that happens, the story of Cindy James remains one of the most confusing and polarizing mysteries around. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you'd like to send in feedback on the story of Cindy James, and if you have an idea of which theory you find more plausible, please feel free to email in. You can reach us at our email account, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to write those in as well. You can follow and contact the podcast on our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Finally, we ask if you are listening to the podcast on iTunes, please take the time to leave a rating and a review. So, until the next episode of the Strange Matters Podcast, take care, everybody.